Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, and uh, I'm your co-host, uh, the techno-viking Don Riley, joined as always by the predator, Christopher Gillespie. Marathon podcaster as well. Hey, I got your name right today. You did. For this episode, and uh, I just want to point out that the Mormons didn't come to my door. Did they know? Maybe they have oh, like... Uh, oh, they know. <laughs> it's like it's like the you know thieves where they, they have... Uh, Whatever secret signs that they mark like your doorpost or whatever. So I think that, so because when I talk to them, I'm I'm like the Viking talking to the monk who shows up at the door because <laughs> they made the mistake last time. It was right after a friend of mine had a heart attack, and they they let off with, "Have you ever wondered why good th- or bad things happen to good people?" Ooh. And I started just uh, yeah, and I met them with Romans six and following, and just hammered on this guy, and like ba- I literally backed them off my deck talking to them about this. I don't know if it was if it was because we lived in a rural place, but uh, I've already seen uh, I've already seen two pairs here in, in less than a week. Mm-hmm. So they're around. Well, exactly. They they're watching. <laughs> they're just waiting. Be on the lookout for vans parked outside your residence. Yeah. But uh, but no, and that's something I don't think we often talk about. I, I'm a pastor, as most of you probably know. I'm a pastor of a small congregation in what's technically called a village, according to the state of Minnesota census. We're a village. We're a bedroom community now. We used to be a farming community. Now we're a bedroom community for the Minneapolis town, right? Yeah, it used to be pig town. And yeah, now everybody here commutes up to the cities for their job. And I am the pastor in Webster, Minnesota now. There is another congregation. It's a very small congregation of literally 10 to 12 people, ELCA. It used to be Haugie Synod. They absorbed into ELCA in the merger. And they, they can't afford to pay a pastor so they have somebody coming on Sundays to do service. So I'm the pastor here. I'm the bishop here. And I take very seriously then that teaching in the Bible that, like we were talking about before we went on the air, is that Satan will attack the church mm. constantly. And so if you think that going to church is going to spare you from the attacks of the devil, think again. You're at ground zero for the devil's attack. Yeah, it's wearing a, a target on your back. Exactly. And again, the devil doesn't pursue you to Perkins on Sunday morning. He doesn't need to. No. <laughs> He's in the church parking lot trying to convince you to turn around and go back home. And so when I see Mormons, for example, and they're my neighbors, they live in the city, so to speak. They're my neighbors. And so I'm kind to them. I love them unless they catch me at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I am the sheepdog for my congregation, but I'm also the bishop of this community. Yeah. And they're satanic. Because they're false teachers, and they teach a false god under the guise of being Christian. That's right. They lead you from Christ by... Exactly. And as I've discovered, too, a lot of widows in my community are led into the Mormon church, not because of their theology, but just because they're lonely. Mm. And these people visit with them and have coffee with them, and they're nice to them. And they can be lifelong Methodists or Lutherans or Roman Catholics, and then the last 10 to 20 years of their life, they're Mormons. Because Mormons care about family and well, they show friendship, up. community. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and at least in my experience here, when a, when a man or a woman is widowed or they're unable to make it to church anymore regularly, the church has a bad tendency to forget about them. Yeah. And if all your other friends are of the same age as you, they might be shut in or homebound as well. They mm. might not be able to get out as often to visit you in the same way you can't visit them and you lose contact with folks. And you feel very lonely and isolated. And as one woman once said to me, I feel like everything I did for the church was for nothing because nobody seems to care that I'm not there anymore. Yeah, And that broke my heart because I thought, that's all of us. Yeah, it's true. Well, in one sense, you know, the things you did really weren't what it was all about, right? Right. Um, So there's that problem that we we still want to, we want credit, we want um, 
you know, the attention. <laughs> yeah, we want the it's eulogy. A, but on the but on the flip resume. side, it's it it, it it was received as not being wanted anymore, right? Yes. As being discarded or lost, right? right? right. Yeah. No, it's like as you pointed out, your works aren't the thing, but you're still a part of the communion of saints. Yeah. And to be essentially excommunicated, except for the contact that you have with your pastor, and God forbid your pastor doesn't even visit you, and your pastor, and again, I understand in a large church, it might be super easy to lose track of somebody for a number of months because you have so many people that you're charged with taking care of. And maybe you have ministries that take care of the elderly, so you're not even aware that this person now is no longer able to attend or as a widower or a widow or or it might be. Or others assume that you do know and you have no awareness. Ah, yes, the lack of communication in the church. Hmm. But nonetheless, then the Mormons come around like they're doing right now, and that's what they're looking for, essentially, is lonely people, people that are struggling to find meaning, people that just want to be included in something. They want to be given a purpose. And when the church doesn't do it, the Mormon church will come alongside and say, like you said, we have a lot of values that we share in common, and we're very loving and happy to sit down and have coffee with you. And, oh, by the way, would you like to read the Bible together? We're happy to read the Bible with you. Yeah. We have a special Bible <laughs> right. that we'll but leave what, with what, you. What drives their fellowship is obedience, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, and belonging and uh, tithing and all, you know. Right, uh, right. Yeah. The, ten, so, the temples and, of every religion. Yeah, right. So, so... Yeah, it's easy to kind of just jump on board because this is what you would hope for or want. Exactly. And so, yes, on the one hand, we do have to love our neighbors and be kind to them. On the other hand, this is a matter of faith. We don't, when it comes to matters of faith, we don't compromise and we're not kind. As mm. a pastor, I, I, will, I refuse to allow my, my people to be led astray by false teachers yeah. in this way. And we have this conversation, at least in my congregation, then of we cannot afford to lose track of people. And it's not just a matter of them ending up feeling like they don't matter. It's a matter of spiritual importance to them. Yeah. To, right. to still be a part of the community of the saints, to still be grounded in Christ and the gifts in a very specific way. Right. But if you lose one family, um, you know, you're going to feel that demographically on a Sunday morning, right? Oh, yeah, for us. You're going to notice, like, if they're out of town for a couple of weeks or something even, right. you're going to notice. Right. Um, because you're talking about, you know, 5 or 10% you know, yeah, decrease exactly. in attendance. Right. Yeah, no, yeah. we have about 65 people in church on a Sunday morning mm-hmm. in the summertime. And so if one family with five kids is gone, that's a, that's a whole pew. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> it's noticeable. Hmm. And it's a little quieter and, you know, all the things that go with it. And the I would say the benefit, you know, when I got here, I thought I was being basically condemned to the gulag. Because I was sent to this little church with 24 members and um, couldn't afford to pay the bills and whatnot. And There's not even a traffic light, right? No, no traffic lights, no. <laughs> no it's, that's not necessary. We have a hill. <laughs> Slow down, speed up. Um, but now as I've gone along and I have so many friends who do have larger congregations and I see the headaches that they have and the responsibilities they have, I and the fact that they can't know personally every member of the congregation the way that they want to, I see the gift that I have as being a small church pastor then, that um, things are slow, things are laid back, things are relaxed. We don't have a budget because we don't need it. Um, And then I have a personal relationship with everybody in my church. I know personally everybody. I've been, except for a few people, I've been to everybody's house. I know their kids personally. And at this point, I've actually baptized most of the kids in the church. Hmm. And so, again, for that them, that means that I am their pastor. They know me as a person. They know me as a pastor, but they're my people. 
because yeah. I know them intimately now. I've heard their confession. I've been in their houses. I've been let into their life in such a way that we have this bond now. Hmm. And I see that that is a benefit of being a small church pastor. But as you said, you're always walking the razor's edge. <laughs> well, and there's risk too to you personally. I mean, that's the other aspect too. Oh, sure. Yes, yes, your your folks are are a target um, for Satan, world, and flesh, right? But but also um, the pastor too. Strike the shepherds, sheep are scattered, right? Yes, yeah, or the sheepdog in this case, right? Yeah. Um, that that that's always going to be a goal because they, you know, you can undermine the whole community by undermining the the so-called leader. Oh, no, no doubt. Because, again, of a small community that has open secrets, if someone decides to destroy my reputation, mm-hmm. which has happened before, yeah. it it's a spark. It's not a bonfire. Or your congregational because, president, even. Yeah, yeah, that happened one time, yeah. <laughs> 10 years ago. That might have happened. Yeah. <laughs> it happens. And, and I can admit now that I dealt with it not well, not mm. wisely, but I didn't have wisdom. Mm-hmm. And after the fact, I did repent, and and he, you know, and he accepted my repentance, and we hugged and we cried together, and we decided that yeah, it's for the best that you not come back to this congregation because we've both burned bridges, and for the health and well being of the congregation, it's best that we go different directions. And mm-hmm. they it's moved and they joined but... a different LCMS church. It was, but it was a healing process for both of us, and it was a healing process for the congregation. And in the end, yeah, right. okay. you know, praise Christ. Um, he used that stupidity to bring good to the congregation and, and health and well-being, and to me for sure. Yeah, and to you, wisdom, as in you fact, said. In fact, that and a couple other incidences my first three years here drove me to reassess everything that I thought about being a pastor and the vocation of pastor. And at least according to my own people, <laughs> um, it's made me a better pastor. It's made me their pastor rather than the pastor at St. John's. And so for me, that's the point is, again, in matters, as Dr. Luther says, in matters of faith, we compromise nothing, but in matters of love, we compromise everything. Yeah. And so, yeah, for the sake of my neighbor, I'll love you to death. I'll do anything I can for you, regardless of what you believe or don't believe. But if you come to my door and start preaching a false gospel to my people, <laughs> I'm, that's, now I got to protect the sheep. Yeah. Because you're a wolf. Yeah. You know? And like we were talking before we went on air, the church is not a game preserve. There's not a fence. No. It's the lions can wander in and out at, as they like. And that's, again, the purpose of the dogs. We try to is, set up fences. We try to set up barriers. Do. Sure. Um, and we do, you know, in an earthly sense. We have, you know, I have to take a sexual, uh, what's that called? The sexual background check. Mm-hmm. That's right. Do background checks. And yet we don't do that on our people necessarily. No. <clears throat> or visitors. No. And then, and then there's sometimes, some of the barriers we set up are... Um, you know, out of fear and insecurity, and then they end up being barriers to the gospel. Then too, being preached There's to that some, too, yeah. right? Yeah, not we yeah. can't have those people because X, Y, Z. You know, right? And again, like we said in the last episode, that's why if you're going to armchair quarterback, understand that you are basically a- attempting to interfere in God's work, hmm. because as Dr. Luther says in in an, a writing he does about this, it might be on the councils of the church or to the Bohemians, maybe. Um, God ordained that pastor. And so who are you to go over there and say, you're doing it wrong? He may be doing it wrong. There's yeah. no doubt about it. But it's God who will tear him down. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me, in the end, not you. Right. <clears throat> How do you not know that he might that God is using this man to actually do something in the congregation spiritually? Hmm. And so, yeah, it's easy to look at from a distance and say, well, that's wrong, or that's right, or that's good, or that's not godly. But unless you're there in the mix, you have no idea what's happening. Right, right. 
especially in matters of confession, because uh, not to get too far off track, because we are going to talk about responsibility in a Nagel sermon. But when pastors ask, actually ask me to break the seal of the confessional, that drives me nuts. <laughs> it's like, well, you don't have to tell me what they said specifically. Just tell me in general what you talked about. No, <laughs> no. no and no. no. The, the seal of the confessional is a sacred trust. And as far as I'm concerned, if I break the seal of confessional, I'm no longer fit to be the pastor at this church. Right. And one of the other dangers is trying to, you know, I've experienced this personally, is, is trying to play some kind of game with it and, and say, well, mm. if I abstract it, how yeah. much can I abstract this so that I can talk about it? And it's like, well, really, right. just don't talk about it. Right, right, exactly. Then the temptation to break the seal, again, the sin's at the door. Don't open the, don't go near the door. Don't put your eye to the, to the keyhole. Yeah. Just don't go. Yeah, this is not something to try to figure out a wiggle room. Exactly, it's not a puzzle. Exactly. Yeah, it's and that's the big thing. Then is that each pastor carries with them a whole mountain of confessions, and at least as far as I run it, once I pronounce the absolution, that's dead. I've dropped that down the hole of Christ's death, and so yeah, it's in my head. I can't not. I'm not God. I can't just up and forget what you just said to me. But I'm never going to bring it up again. Period. No, that's it's interesting because you might have that in another conversation. Well, like I told you the last time, and you're like, right. You know, thankfully, I'm, a, I'm a, maybe I'm well suited for this because <laughs> I, I can't say. remember. I can't remember what happened on the last episode of the show right. I watched. So yeah, I always exactly. need those recaps at the beginning. So yeah, go ahead and right. tell me again because I don't remember. <laughs> this is also the importance of of having a fulfilling life. <laughs> yeah, is to be busy in such a way that you don't have time to sit and uh, ruminate. Yeah. About about one thing it's or true. what one person said that one time. Well, it's almost like a first world problem, right? We have so much freedom, so sure. much free time that we, we end up getting all caught up in ourselves and the things we've heard. And yeah. Well, I'll, I can even use an example that came up two weeks ago because it's not within the seal. That uh, a member of my congregation who's like a sister to me, I'm like a brother to her. Something I said a year and a half ago was brought up to her by somebody else from a different church. And then she texted me and said, did you say this? And I said, when did I say this? One, I would never say that about you, first of all. I don't talk that way. And two, why would I ever say that about you? What's the context? Well, so-and-so said a year and a half ago at a Bible study, you said this about me. And I said, maybe. It was a year and a half ago. I don't know. Again, like you said, I don't know what I said on the last podcast. <laughs> no. But um, she went back then and challenged this person. It turns out this person was essentially saying, well, Someone at the Bible study, I wasn't at the Bible study, someone at the Bible study told me this, and this is the way that they heard it. And I was like, okay, but you, that's gossip. That's, you're, you're breaking the Eighth Commandment now. Yeah. And you're basically trying to, you're, you're trying to destroy my reputation. You're trying to put a wedge between me and a member of my congregation. You created doubt, by the way, for mm -hmm. this person now. And then now we have to have this meeting and sit down and try and figure out what did I actually say and what was it in context to. And in the end, we figured out I didn't say it. It didn't even come up. It was just this person decided, well, I just remember thinking this at the time, that this pertained to this person. He didn't say it. That's the nature of memory is... Uh, right. It's, it's, it's very fungible. <laughs> it's fungible. fungible. And uh, it doesn't mean that we don't remember things, but we don't always remember them precisely, right? Exactly, right. Yeah. This is why DNA evidence in court is more trustworthy than personal testimonies. Correct. It was yeah. a green car. Mm, it was definitely a red car. Mm, no, I think it was a van. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was. yeah. And so, yeah, that's why I say is, if I always speak the truth in love, I never have to worry about whether I said something hurtful or at least said something with malice in order to hurt someone or to right. use someone as a prop 
for my ministry or whatever it might be, but rather to speak the truth in love in such a way to say, I might have said that, so if I did, I'm sorry, and I'll, I'll in the future I'll try to hold my tongue, you know, and not use you as an example. But I don't think I would do that. So maybe clarify for me. Go back and talk to this person to clarify. Mm-hmm. But we do this so often and so easily because it's just again socially speaking, gossip kind of fuels a lot of our conversations. Yeah. And because again, that's what being a church historian is essentially. It, being a historian is just being a town gossip that had to get a legitimate vocation. So. Yeah. You know, history is just, hey, let's gossip about Napoleon. <laughs> well, and there is there is this way that we, we project the same sort of idea upon God, right? That, oh, that yeah. he, he talks about us and he, he says things, uh, reveals things about us to hurt and harm us, right? Not out of love. You're right, right, right. And so we have that same idea. It's not, I mean, yeah, and that he reveals our confessions to others and, it, you know, right. it, no, he doesn't treat us that way and he doesn't, right. he doesn't he doesn't say anything to hurt and harm Mm -hmm. us, right? Everything's for for the sake of repentance, for love, to receive Christ and to be forgiven, right? Well, and to use that as a segue into the sermon then, it's when you think that way, essentially what God is saying then is, why don't you take responsibility for once and for once? Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) It's like, why is this my problem? I wouldn't have to say these things about you if you hadn't given me cause to say them. Hmm. It's like, God doesn't usually try and pass off responsibility for divinity on us, even though we would love for him to do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the premise of um, what's that? Um, Joe Almighty is that the name of the movie? Where oh. uh, with uh, Jim Carrey and Morgan Freeman? Is it God? And then the la- the second one with Stephen Carell was Evan Almighty or whatever. But anyways, that's the premise of the movie. Is like if I could be God for a day, hmm. <laughs> what would it? What would it be like? And of course, it it's a disaster. Bruce Almighty. It's Bruce Almighty. Oh, Bruce Almighty. Bruce. Two thousand three. Mighty Joe Young. That's a story about a monkey. That's a totally different movie. <laughs> An ape. But, um, but no, and so this is the point then of this <clears throat> sermon by Dr. Nagel. It's the eighth Sunday after Pentecost sermon from London in 1955. So a very young Norman Nagel. Mm-hmm. 1 Corinthians 10, 13b. So now we're in 1 Corinthians 10. And this is the interesting thing about Dr. Nagel is... His early sermons are not as polished, obviously, as his later sermons. He's not as seasoned, but they're still better than anything I've ever preached. Yeah. <laughs> not to say that I'm a great preacher or even a good preacher, but the fact that as a young man, fresh out of seminary, um, and even his graduate, his dissertation on the Lord's Supper is amazing. Like most dissertations are just p- tedious, pedantic exercises in in self, I don't know, aggrandizing. Right. They're, they're, well, yeah, they're, I mean, they're vanity they're, projects. Yeah, you're trying to complete a project in order to <clears throat> right. To and I'll, again, maybe that's too too broad. My dissertation was a vanity project, writing about the theology of the cross. Um, but nonetheless, but it's been a blessing uh, to you Nagel, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. I looked into the well of history and found myself um, shocker. But um, no, that's that's again one of the reasons that I think for both of us, Doctor Nagel is one of our top five theologians, not top three theologians, is he just is so good with words and then the way that he expresses himself and the way that he puts together these truths. He just does it in such a a great way and and it's so elegant that it's hard for me anyways to not hmm, appreciate it and be grateful for it Mm -hmm. and and really just sit in it and revel in it because I love words. I think most preachers probably love words. That's why we do what we do. Um, so he's a wordsmith, we would say. Oh yeah, for but, sure. But I think the other aspect, and I, we're going to see this here, is that he he tries to get, he tries to um, preach the mind of God, right? Right. Not just the, the word of God, like here are the words that God says, but but here's the 
um, you know, the divine logic behind the expression, for example. And I think that's a great point is that because for, for Nagel, I think I'm right here, is that the mind of God is Jesus. Mm. That whatever, again, G- Jesus is God's word. So whatever God is thinking is expressed through his word. Because for God to speak is to do. And there's a kind of binary relationship there then. So that Jesus as the word of God is the mind of God. Because as Dr. Luther and Nagel would would, uh, echo this, whatever we know about God is revealed to us in Jesus. And whatever is not revealed to us about God in Jesus is hidden from us and we're not to approach it. That's Mm -hmm. God and his majesty. That's the God of Sinai that says, you can't look upon my face and live. And so to know the mind of God, like you say, and but also broadly speaking, in this time period, it's still okay to talk about metaphysics. Yeah. In our generation, metaphysics is like frowned upon as, and it's almost become like the territory of like new age spiritual gurus and stuff. Yeah, but he talks metaphysics, but he does it in relation to psychology, sociology. Yeah. Well, in he, one of his sermons, he talks about, you know, how, how are we to understand God? Because we're not God. And he likens it to the relationship of a grasshopper to me. Like how... Can a grasshopper understand what's in the mind of a man if the man and so his conclusion is, well, the man would have to become a grasshopper and communicate with the grasshopper in the grasshopper's language, using his idioms and colloquialisms and metaphors, in order to express to the grasshopper, this is what it's like to be a human being. Mm. In the same way, God does that to us. And therefore, even though God reveals this is what it's like to be God, and this is what it means for you to be a human, it's still mediated through our words and Again, Jesus does this constantly. He uses common everyday metaphors, yeah. agricultural metaphors, to communicate these big truths, which we would actually call mythic ways of talking. Mm. Yeah. Not myth in the sense of fairy tale, but myth in the sense of communicating these uncompre- incomprehensible truths in a way that we can understand. Yeah. <clears throat> how do you comprehend the creation of the universe when you weren't there? Hmm. Or how do you comprehend God becoming man when... That's never happened before or since, and we're not gods, so we can't do that. You know, God can be in two places at once. How is that possible when physically for us, that's impossible? How does he communicate this to us? And as you pointed out, what Nagel does, I think, so elegantly then is that he communicates that. Uh, it, it's it's hard to kind of describe, but, but he'll um, disprove, um, you know, our... I want to say our mortal way of approaching things, right? Or yeah. our, our rational way, we'll say. He'll disprove, you know, using a clear rational argument. That isn't to mm-hmm. say he proves, right. you know, the divine, but he but he disproves at least, you know, our own kind of right. way to try to figure it out. Well, I think this is one of the, I was just talking with someone about this the other day, that one of the, I think, the problems, so to speak, that we have is that we're children of the rationalist movement. Mm. We're children of pietism. We're children of romanticism. We're children of the Enlightenment. And as such, we we often get in our own way trying to rationalize things that cannot be reasoned out. Right. <laughs> They're not reasonable. And also, by the way, be careful, because when we talk about reason, we're already talking about seeking wisdom. Mm-hmm. And again, that as Paul warns us, it's not going to lead you to the kingdom. And yeah, there's a time to be reasonable and there's a time to be rational, but there's also a time then to give it up and accept that this is beyond my comprehension. And so all I can do is use the tools that are available available to me to communicate these grand truths. Mm-hmm. And let the truth stand. For- exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Cause it's and As we're about to get into this whole question of temptation then. Mm. And if God is good and God loves me and God loves me Jesus much, 
why then do I still fall into temptation? Why am I still overcome by sin? Why do I die? Why do I see God as enemy versus uh, father? Like, why does all that happen if he's God? This is the atheist argument. How can there be evil if God is good? Yeah. And, but and as you pointed out, to my point, to your point, we use our own definitions and categories of good and evil to then define God. Right. Yeah. And then even even what it means to not be tempted beyond what you're capable right. of being tempted. Well, what does that I just look like? This, I just had this conversation with someone about the whole matter of good and evil because I pointed out everything that we usually use to define good and evil are philosophical categories, not theological. Right. They're not biblical definitions. Like, there's only one who is good, God. Okay, there. That is so anti-philosophical. <laughs> that good is the is actually a person, not a thing. It's not an idea to be embodied. But rather, God is good and it's embodied in the Word. Hmm. So, our philosophical categories about truth, Jesus says, I am the truth. Or life, Jesus says, I am life. Or love, God is love, Jesus is God, therefore Jesus is love. Well, that means categorically speaking, anything that's not Jesus is not divine love. It's not love in an agape, unconditional, without limit or measure sense. And yet we are constantly trying to apply philosophical categories and definitions to the Bible. We do this a lot with natural law too, by the way. Mm. We make these natural law arguments as if they exist philosophically in Genesis or other places in the Bible versus asking the question, how does God explain himself? How does yeah. God explain what natural law is and isn't? Because as we talked about in the last episode, we tend to think of natural law in terms of obey the rules mm. versus God saying, no, actually, the, the natural law is love your neighbors yourself and love me with your yeah. whole heart, soul, and mind. Well, like with this text that uh, Nagel's preaching on, 1 Corinthians uh, 10, I mean, we, when it comes to temptation, we think of it, I think, in maybe a very narrow or a small sense, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, well, we're talking about not being, you know, not allowing temptation or not being allowed to fall into temptation. We're talking about like little things, right? Like the yeah. temptation second to table stuff. second table stuff, whereas the context is, is very clear. We're talking about unbelief, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're talking about he's not going to allow you to, to fall back into unbelief. Right. Right? I mean, that's, that's what his prevention here is. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that you're going to be without sin or that without the temptation to sin. But, but, or that you're going to fight against belief. Hmm. Again, uh, people that grow up in the church that then reject the church or reject God, they're rejecting a very specific definition or formulation of God, which is the God that they were taught growing up. Ah, yes. (laughs) And again, as I've said before, some atheists that I meet are some of the most religious people I know. (laughs) They know more about the Bible than most Christians. Hmm. Because in order to reject God, you first have to know, what am I rejecting? Yeah. And they're thorough depending well, on how uh, violently opposed they are. To- yeah, and um, their their form of atheism is really rejection maybe of what we might call institutional Christianity, right? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, or a very specific manifestation, yeah. you know, American right. Christianity. Right. Mm. So dive, let's dive into the text then, Nafla. Yeah, let's do So it. we're going to be on page 178 and 179 today. And again, this is a sermon from 1955, preached in London on 1 Corinthians 10, verses, verse 13b, for the eighth Sunday after Pentecost. Dr. Norman Nagel selected Sermons of Norman Nagel from Concordia Publishing House. Mm-hmm. Buy it now on Kindle or hard copy. Oh, you can get the CD from Logia. Right, linked in the show notes. There we go. Bottom of page 178, last paragraph. We should pause here to consider the question of responsibility. So up to this point, what he's been discussing, Nagel's been discussing in the sermon, is this whole matter of temptation, um, God versus Satan and Job, 
talking about the serpent tempting Eve in Genesis, Abraham, and the temptation of Abraham in the demand to sacrifice Isaac. So now we're coming up on kind of the 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 outcome of, of those con- those examples. So we should pause here to consider the question of responsibility. Why does God tempt or permit temptation? Is God to be blamed for the resulting curse and damage? A ghastly thought. God cannot be blamed. He is never responsible for evil, as James says. And our catechism follows. His purpose is to bless his children. To bless, God allows the risk of temptation, but it is a calculated risk. Full stop. God allows the risk of temptation. Why? To bless. It is a calculated risk. Interesting. Yeah, right? You can spend a lot of time thinking about that little clause. God allows the risk of temptation. Well, I mean, think about it in terms of the garden, right? So right. The, the the trees and uh, um, there's the prohibition against uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there's a, the tree of life, right, which is mm-hmm. of, of great blessing. And um, there's the risk, of course, <laughs> putting such a tree in the garden, right? But for those who are, I mean, for the faithful, it's not a risk at all. It's just like, right. that's just not a tree for me, right? That, that right. should have been probably the approach, but of course, um, right. we chose well, otherwise. It, it, I think, too, for me, it goes to the deeper question of what is evil, because we automatically assign the term evil to Satan, to, mm. to Lucifer, without first taking a step back and asking the question, how does the Bible actually explain to us this fallen angel? Well, one, he's a creature of God. He's not God. So let's stop making him equal with God or Jesus. Yeah, omnipresent and all that. Right. right. So the devil made me do it. And we're going to get to that, actually, that it's not it's not God or the devil's fault that you sin. The devil's like a Toreador in a bull arena. He just kind of goes ole, and we kind of take care of most of the hard work for him. But um, rather that when we say, well, the devil's evil. Well, but the devil's a creature of God, and the devil serves God's purposes. That's shown in Job. Yeah, you know, and and Nagel used that example. That does God allow the risk of temptation? That's what the entire book of Job is about. Hmm. Um, and so, again, we have to, I think, be careful when we start throwing around terms like good and evil, because yeah, we're like God, knowing good and evil, but we have neither the power nor the ability to con- to get a handle on good or evil. Well, we think of them in philosophical categories, right? Rather right. than simply say uh, what is good is of God and what is evil is, is a rejection well, not of God. God. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so if, if Satan, if the accuser, rejects the blessing, that is by very definition, biblically speaking, evil. Right. Likewise, if the man and the woman eat the fruit and they turn from God to the fruit and to each other, that is by definition, evil. And so are we evil? No, we're good because God says we're good. But uh, as a, on account of sin and our turning away from God and his word, yeah, we are. We behave, we, we think and speak and act in such a way that we actually turn from God and therefore that is by definition the evil. Right. And therefore, it's a calculated risk. Our text, 1 Corinthians 10, is his promise that he will never allow a temptation, quote, beyond what we are able. Oof. Again, that's a simple statement, but it's just not easy to carry. No. Because I can think of a lot of temptations that uh, are beyond what I am able to (laughs) to, to get a a handle on. Well, I mean, the question is, is, are there temptations that we are able to handle? Right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, mischief managed, right? (laughs) Well, and this goes to the whole point of responsibility then, that he will never allow a temptation beyond what we are able. And then I look at a temptation and say, well, I'm not able. 
Mm. Well, is that true? Or is that simply me not wanting to take responsibility for sin? Yeah. To say, well, hey, it's the woman you gave me. It's not my fault. Yeah. I mean, even for the believer in Christ, you know, we can say, well, I can't handle this. And what are you saying to Christ then? Exactly. You are not, um, you are not powerful, you know, to, to overcome right. this temptation for me. Right. You know? Well, it's twofold too. Like the Stoics would say, it's not the circumstances that are incomprehensible, but rather our how we perceive circumstances. Mm. That we allow circumstances to overwhelm us, and then we say, "I've been overwhelmed. I can't. I, I'm, this is out of control. I'm, I'm ruined." Victim. No, actually, yes. you're a victim. Exactly, and that's really the Stoic answer: is it's not the circumstances that overpower us, but our perception of them that we allow to overpower us, and mm. say, "I can't. There's nothing I can do about this." Yeah. Well, yeah, there is. It's just the way in which you're looking at it. Or you just don't want to. Or you don't want to. Exactly. It's, um, to use the analogy, since I haven't brought it up for a while, in jujitsu, when you're learning a technique and you say, well, that's impossible. I'll never be able to pull off that technique. Yes, you will if you keep practicing and recognize <laughs> the technique is pure. The technique succeeds 100% of the time. It's been proven over time to succeed and work 100% of the time. It's not the technique that's failed. It's your perception right. of what is necessary to pull off the technique that has allowed you to say, I'll never be able to do that. Yeah, or maybe you're just, um, maybe it's raw ability to execute that technique. In that moment, but if you keep doing it through repetition, you will learn eventually to pull off that technique. Yeah. Because well, again, it's not the technique that's the problem. The technique so the, is foolproof. So the problem is our perception is that we're far less capable than what we maybe actually exactly, are. Exactly. Or someone says, well, I just don't have time to do that. No, that's the adult version of saying the dog ate your homework. Yeah, that's right. You don't have, don't it's not a priority. take the time. That's right. right. You know, I just, I don't have the time to get to church regularly anymore, Pastor. No, you don't have it as a priority to get to church anymore. And you've mm -hmm. therefore decided that your time is more better spent and more valuable doing this other thing. And as I've talked about with you before, I used to be upset in the summertime knowing that attendance was going to drop. And just this past Sunday, then someone was complaining about that at church. And, I, and it kind of hit me on my way across the parking lot. Church is when we find out people's priorities. Mm -hmm. That's really when people's priorities, at least in the United States, that's when our priorities kind of get sorted out because now we're free from school schedules and work schedules are kind of in flux. Church in the summer in specific. Church yeah. in the summer, exactly. And that's why I said, you know, in the summertime, we don't spend money here. It's Advent through Lent. That's when we spend money because that's when the church is full. Because mm -hmm. that's when people feel the need to come back to church, Christmas even, and Easter. Even though like repair and building projects and stuff, you know, are more easily yes. done in the summer, the yeah. cash flow is not. <laughs> right, exactly. And so, especially in a small church, you just have to learn when where you are at on that bell curve mm -hmm. of offering money to do what needs to be done. And like I said, I'm not... And for me, it was very liberating to recognize, oh, wait, no, the summertime is just when people's priorities come. Like their true priorities get get mm -hmm. free to kind of range. And so what are my priorities? Well, I want to go up to the cabin this weekend, or I want to go to the lake, or I want to go golfing, or I want to do this, or I want to do that. Well, you can do that after church, or you can do that on Saturday or some other time. Well, I just don't have time. No, it's just not a priority to go to church. Yeah. It is so a just, judgment, and it is a judgment of value. <laughs> it is, right? but it's also a passing off of responsibility. Yeah, I don't have time is, again, playing the victim card. I'm a victim to time. <laughs> it's like, the dog ate my homework. It was a, it was a great report, I promise you. It was my, my niece's birthday yesterday and played uh, my, one of my favorite uh, They Might Be Giant songs. 
um, <laughs> which is <laughs> time keeps marching on. Yes, time keeps marching. I'm older than I've ever been, and now I'm even older, and now That's I'm right. even older, and now That's I'm right. even older. <laughs> it just keeps marching on, and you're the and it's exactly that. You're the victim of time. Right. Well, and reality is real, and whether we want to acknowledge that we're a part of it or not is really at the root of a lot of of the conflict and destructive habits that we develop mm. and why we don't want to take responsibility for things like temptation and sin. Yeah, because we want yeah. to say that we're not able. Right, so the, the devil made me do it. Mm-hmm. Well, that may be true sometimes, not all the time. It's not the devil who made every light turn red so that you got to church late. Why don't you just yeah. argue, um, if we're going to argue sinful flesh, right. I wanted to do it. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Well, there's that too, right? That he's sinning and that's terrible because I could never get away with that. Or I want to do that. Or mm-hmm. I would never do that, but I really wish I could do that. Yeah, right. It's like I said in the sermon last week, you, you pray that God would remove your sins, just not the ones that you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the reason we keep committing sin is because it feels good. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. Yeah. We enjoy like, it. Of course. These so are therefore, our friends. <laughs> here's my friends. Sins like pet rocks. So therefore, if we sin when tempted, we cannot blame God. We are responsible. It could have been a blessing for us. That is what God wanted it to be. But we reject the blessing in consenting to sin. The temptation that curses is never the will of God. This is the temptation of which the small catechism speaks when it says God tempts no one. And scripture says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted because of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. James 1, 13 through 14. Yeah, his own passions. That's right. And and one of the ways that this works practically, and I love having this conversation, especially with other pastors, is when someone says, well, he committed adultery or she got a divorce and then went and shacked up with this other dude. And isn't that terrible how we let lust you know, drag us away from our, our earthly vocations or someone gets arrested for having, or not arrested, but you know, their marriage and their family breaks up because they're addicted to pornography, for example. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, they got caught. And it's like, but Jesus says in Matthew, if you even look at another woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. And so really what you're doing here is you're parsing out sin in order to exonerate yourself from something that you know is true about yourself, which yeah. is that you have definitely done this before. But you didn't get caught because it's all taking place in your heart. Yeah. And so why don't you go carve out your eyeball, since it cost you to sin, and then come back and complain about the guy who got caught out in public for having an, adult, an adulterous affair. Yeah. That's really what it comes down to. Is it's not that, that we're able. Uh, it's that it's that, uh, that person got away with it. So they're not responsible exactly. for their actions. Exactly. They want to be, and, we want them to be held responsible so right. that we're not, maybe? Or, or yeah. Because if well, they get off the think, hook, then we should get off the hook. That's all. Well, exactly. And that's why I think Jesus does that, especially in Matthew. As you notice, the religious leaders are always focused on external works and then obedience to the law through mm. external works, through behavior. And then Jesus goes, oh, did you think that the law was all about what you do or don't do? It's actually about your mm. heart. It's what, That's why Dr. Luther points out, and this was a revelation to me too, is the, the ninth and 10th commandments against coveting are actually the most damning because they have to do with the heart and emotions. I can stop my hand from stealing. I can stop my tongue from tearing down my neighbor. But the one thing that I have no control over, for the most part, are my emotions. Yeah, they're, so, they're as comprehensive as the first commandment, almost. Exactly, mm. exactly. And so, at least in a fleshy sense, right? Well, and in the rabbinic sense, you know, when you double the commandments, when you take two commandments and put them together the, the way the rabbis do, if you take coveting and put it with the first commandment, fear, love, and trust of God, 
now all of a sudden you go, oh, okay. <laughs> love, for example, isn't something I have, I have control over. I can't choose what or who I fall in love with. Hmm. I can't choose necessarily what it is that I'm afraid of because we all have irrational fears. Right. And so a lot of what I fear, love, and trust more than anything else is beyond my control. I love my children and I can't really control that. I just do. And so that's why I always use that as an example of how I disobey the first commandment is I love my children more than God mm, because there's yeah. nobody that I love more than my children mm. because they're me. <laughs> they're me, but not me, right? Yeah. Um, and therefore, when it says coveting, you're like, oh, coveting, yeah, I don't covet. And then you're like, well, actually, that means the cravings of your heart. Oh, okay. Yeah, all of them, right? All of them, exactly, all of them. And now we're in trouble. Because we're like, but God, it's not my fault. You gave me these children. Yeah. You gave me I... even these desires. I've had, had exactly. folks argue that. Yeah. Right. Again, I'm the victim here. I mean, if you really think about it, I'm the victim. I wouldn't want to commit adultery unless God thought it was good, the idea. <laughs> right, exactly. If God had not wanted me to chase after that woman, he would have stopped me. Mm, yeah. Which, again, is the atheist argument. The atheist argument, the unbeliever's argument is, if there was a God, he would stop evil from happening. Yeah. And since there's so much evil, it's obvious then that there is no God. By the way, this is also the free will argument. Hmm. It's a slippery slope that God gives us free will in order to test us. Uh. So if we sin when we're tempted, we can't blame God. We're responsible for both giving into the sin and or giving into the temptation and sinning. It could have been a blessing, but alas, we gave in a temptation. We said, I'm just not capable of resisting this, and we sinned. The blessing of of being tempted, uh, we might call that the uh, uh, bearing the cross, right? Yeah, right. Bearing right. one's cross, you know, because right. temptation is ultimately not just to do according to the passions of our heart, but mm -hmm. but um, you know, to commit acts of unbelief, right? To go against right. God's word. Yes, and um, so that's to bear the cross. But we usually think of bearing the cross as some kind of burden. Right, because it's bearing, right? Right. So, right. And, and whereas Na Dr. Nagel is saying here, um, no, actually, to bear one's cross is a blessing to recognize um, right. what, 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 well, what is the blessing? Yeah. Well, to recognize that you can't, you cannot keep your heart from coveting. Hmm. Therefore, it also then drives you to your need for a savior. Yeah. So, so I can, the backspin of the gospel is I can confess that my children are my God. Hmm. because I take that to the Lord and go here, this is mine. I need you to remove this burden from me because I know that this, this thing that is meant for gift and is a gift I receive as gift. I'm grateful for these children could actually be the thing that keeps me out of the heavenly kingdom, yeah. out of the wedding feast of the lamb. So again, in your mercy for Christ's sake, turn my heart, change my heart. So in the confession, the confession is a consequence of faith. The, the yeah. confession is a consequence of justification. Well, and your statement about idolatry of children might be hard to hear, but I mean, Jesus himself says, you know, leaving behind father, mother, yeah. and wife, children for yeah. my sake in the gospel. I mean, that that sometimes um, is is necessary, right? Oh, for sure. And you and I both know families that have been split apart over the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Children leaving churches or husbands and wives going to different churches on Sunday morning because yeah. of this whole matter of the gospel. <clears throat> and yeah, it's horrible. And it driving and, and sometimes driving a wedge into the marriage. I mean, that's oh, absolutely that there there are families of, you know, mom and dad are different faith, but then they have kids. Yes. And they have to choose, you mm -hmm. know, where which 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 one of the kids gonna be. Or they're gonna choose both, which is right. something that neither of them require, right? Or is required yeah. of them. 
Each parent gets to worship and believe the way they want to believe, but then they're making right. kids believe both. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and that's and, not harmful or destructive to the children at all. No. And In so, fact, and we're, then, uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, uh, you have teenagers, I have a teenager now. This is a conversation that we have, is about you're going to be in situations where you have to make a choice. Do you want to be yoked with an unbeliever for the sake of companionship? Mm-hmm. Because I can tell you from personal experience, man, you can pull it off, but it's going to be rough. Yeah. And you and you and if you want to have children and you're thinking about, you know, down the road when you're an adult, you want to have children, do you want your spouse to be telling your children there's no God while you're headed out the door with the kids to go to church? Right. Yeah, and there's examples in the New Testament talking about, you know, the the prayers of believing spouse redeeming the unbelieving. Mm-hmm. But the I mean the, the setting there is we're talking about um spouses who convert Right, right, right. Yeah, they're both unbelieving or believing something else, and one converts to Christianity, and that, you know, stay in the marriage, right? Don't break the marriage. Yeah, but that, that's a little bit different setting than saying, uh, "I'm going to join myself to this person who doesn't believe what right. I believe." Because a house divided cannot stand. Yeah, and it, you'll see it, that through the children for sure. And we're not talking about, um, you know, pastorally it can be challenging, you know. Uh, like a forced conversion isn't the right idea either, right? No, no, those don't those don't usually work. I mean, I, I've, how many often does that happen? Well, you know, I became a Roman Catholic because I had to, or my or I yeah. could marry him. You're like, yeah, and look at where that got you, right? You know, exactly, because outside the church, outside of faith, you know, or yeah. into some kind of mixture of who knows what, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, let's get let's let's bring you back home, right? right. So Nagel continues: the temptation mm-hmm. that curses is the temptation of Satan the accuser. So he tempted Eve, intending her misery, and so he tempted Job. But here we see the wonder of God beyond our understanding, that he uses Satan and would make even the evil intention temptations of Satan serve his purpose. God would turn the temptations of Satan to the blessing of his children. God would have us grow. God could destroy Satan by his almighty power, but he wants us to grow into such men and women so we are able to get the victory over the evil one. He does not want us to stop growing, therefore. Oh, I'm sorry. He does not want us to stop growing. Therefore, he does not stop temptations coming to us. Despite themselves and what they want to achieve, the devil, the world, and our flesh are made to serve the purpose of God. This is what I was talking about in the last episode, that God bends all of creation toward our salvation, even making the devil an agent of our salvation. Yeah, he may be the devil, but he's God's devil, Luther said. Exactly. I think in Galatians lectures, he talks about this quite often. Yeah, yeah. He's on a leash. <laughs> he is restrained. On, exactly. Right. You know. And there, yeah. Yeah. And that in Christ, this is why in Christ, we can simply say to the devil, go lay down by your dish. Hmm. He's kind not of, a threat. It's kind of like, um, oh, I don't know. What's the, what's the beast in Return of the Jedi? Ah. The Rancor monster? Yeah, that's like the Rancor, you know. I mean, he's yeah. really, he's really just Jabba's rancor. Exactly, he's Jabba's rancor. He's chained which is up. Why, he's in his cage. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's there. He'll terrify you. You could, you know, but right. but if Jabba puts you in his cage, <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, and that's the problem. Is that it's we always conceive of like I said, the devil versus Jesus, or the devil versus God, and it's not. That the devil is God's devil. He's Lucifer. He's still an angel of God. He's still a creature of God, fallen or not. Mm. And therefore, he is subject to God's will, regardless. Yeah. Yeah. And if the devil comes and attacks you and accuses you, like Dr. Luther says, points his finger at you and says, you're a terrible sinner who deserves death and hell, the response of the Christian is, absolutely, I deserve death and hell. Thank God, then, that Jesus died and went into hell for me and came out the other side so that I don't have to worry about that anymore. 
Thank yeah. you, devil, for reminding me of my need for my Savior, that I have a great Savior in Jesus. Here's the other aspect of it. I mean, that for the Christian life, especially, um, you know, Jesus says temptations will come. Pray that yeah. you not enter into temptation, right? Right. So, I mean, the, sometimes people think, you know, to become a Christian is to, to become, it's going to be an easier life. You know, it's going to be easier. <laughs> right. well, first, first, you know, when you confess the need for a Savior, as you said, the backspin is that you're confessing that you're a sinner. And we do right. that regularly. <laughs> and not surprising, a lot of other people don't like being reminded uh, that they are sinners in need exactly. of a Savior. Exactly. And then the other aspect of it is, is that like we talked about, um, you know, it does put a, a target on your back, right? And now, yes. now because you have confessed Christ, now you're the, you're the sort of person that the devil would come after. I mean, he's not right. interested, like uh, Lewis kind of diagnoses in screw tape letters. I mean, they're, the demon, the demonic host, they're not really interested in those who are happy in their kind of mistaken belief right. or unbelief, right? Well, and we do, we, we all have this tendency, I think, again, the old Adam, we have this tendency to revel in other people when they fall, especially pastors. Hmm or church leaders that when they fall into temptation and their their sin is exposed there's a certain kind of glee we take from pointing their fingers and going thank god i'm not that poor bastard but he got yeah. what he deserved it's like dude no like the the same temptation that fell upon that person is just as likely to fall upon you yeah may even it, be at your door and the fact that you think that you can't be tempted in that way or that it's impossible for you to be tempted that way makes you ripe to be tempted mm, in that mm. exact way. Because when we're attacked, when we're tempted, it's definitely going to be in that weak spot. Well, the like, point, the devil, is, well, the point is, is, I mean, that temptation is um, is going to come, right? Yes. and, and, and never, then, But never straight on, dude. It never comes straight at your face. The devil never knocks on your door other than unless they're Mormons. The devil never says, hi, I'm <laughs> Satan, and I'm here to tempt you into sin and unbelief. That rarely, if ever, happened. And then when it does happen, when an atheist says to me, you can't possibly believe all this stupid stuff. It's so blatantly obvious that it's a temptation to unbelief that you can just laugh in his face and go, yeah, actually, I do. That's yeah, how crazy but, I am. But, but, you know, the devil went down to Georgia, right? I mean, did fall right. for it. Well, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Extra biblical literature. <laughs> Charlie Daniels. <laughs> it's uh, apocryphal. It but, is a none, apocryphal. but in my experience as a, as a human being and as a pastor, the devil comes at you sideways. Mm, yeah, backdoor and, attack, and it, right? It's, and, and it's usually through people you trust. Hmm. it's it's usually in a way where you're soft where where that again that one scale is missing from your your armor yeah and and that's where he hits you with that dart is where are you weakest well do you have low self-confidence well i'm gonna attack your physical being you're fat you're ugly you have stretch marks you have crow's feet your hair is not the right color you have the wrong kind of clothes your shoes are dumb la 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 and then all of a sudden boom we devote our life. We become obsessed with the way that we look and our image and how other people perceive us. Or maybe he into, maybe it's an intellectual thing and he attacks you that way. I mean, for me, one of the great temptations is to despair because the, the thought that I spent this much time hmm. in my life learning and then to get dementia. Yeah. To, to succumb to dementia terrifies me because I have to sit with people all the time. I get to sit with people now and, and minister to folks in the congregation who, who have dementia. And when I look at them and I sit with them, and I think to myself, everything is gone. Everything. Everything they've ever done, everything they've accomplished, every person they've ever known, their own spouse and children, gone, wiped out. And yet they're still here. Um, or um, 
my elder's uh, father was uh, has a form of ALS that paralyzes mm-hmm. your your voluntary motor s- uh, skills, right. but you're still alive. You don't die, and so he is he's going to be encased in a sarcophagus of his own body and yet be prison. fully conscious. Yeah. It's a prison. Like to me, that's terrifying because I'm such a physically active person. But the temptation is there for me then to to basically say I got to do everything possible to prevent this from happening. Hmm. Well, we know that you can't really prevent dementia, mm-hmm. <laughs> not really, um, and you can't really prevent ALS. I think we if don't you have, have a, what is it three or five cups of coffee a day that reduces yeah, at, the at risk? least at least three or five cups at least of coffee by Gillespie and drink kombucha and eat sauerkraut and go keto and you know blah 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 blah. Yeah. We do it. We all do it. it the temptation is there. Um, and so, again, the very things that we can point on and go, these make me a better person or these make me a healthier person or a wiser person, very easily at the flip of a coin, we can just flip, turn that around, and now that becomes the thing that leads us away from Christ. Yeah. yeah. It's very, again, I, I am at an academy five days a week, two hours every day, training in mixed martial arts. I see people every day, this is their religion, this is their house, this is their God. It's easy. There's a fellowship, there's rules, there's rituals, there's rubrics, there's advancement and progression. It's a merit-based system. All these encouraging, hyper-motivated people are there with you and you're talking about diet and exercise and well-being and you listen to the same podcast and read the same books and blah, blah, blah. And then you go, oh, like we were talking about with the Mormons, these people, this is their religion, this is the house of their God. And what they're trying to do is to push back mortality. Mm, Yeah. You know, and I have entered into that. And like any other situation that any of us enter into, you're walking that razor's edge all the time. Yeah. What, what OCD can turn into religion. <laughs> oh, very quickly. You know, yeah. I got my friend's 46 years old and he's decided he's got one more Muay Thai fight in him. And I'm like, good, you know, God bless you, man. But <laughs> you're also one concussion away from not having, you know, dribbling all over yourself when you eat. Right. So, yeah. So what, why do you need this fight? At this age, you fought. You were a professional fighter. You've done it. Mm. You're, you're my. I need you as my training partner. You're my friend. I get it. But nonetheless, let's let's think about this. Is yeah. this really necessary? And yeah. why is it necessary? And we all do that in our own ways. Like yeah. I said, it's relationships, intellectually, emotionally, whatever it might be. And again, well, like I said, there's nothing wrong with it inherently until the temptation comes. Well, and I think the other thing is that a naivete about. Um, you know, the Christian life having, oh, I don't know, like a, a, a terminus that comes before death. So so we think that temptation yeah. will end when we get to a certain level of spiritual enlightenment or progression, <laughs> right. right? And then, th- right. then we'll no longer be tempted, we'll be above temptation, not, you know, no shame or grief or despair will fall upon us, mm-hmm. which, is, which is contrary to scripture, uh, and also just <laughs> co- that. incredibly naive, right? Right. Hmm. So to continue, then, the world, as the scriptures and the catechism speak of it in this connection, is not the creation as such, not the trees, the stars, the birds, my fingernails, but everything about us that strives to drag us away from God, which we were just talking about, actually. Mm-hmm. That's the point, is that when, when, when scripture refers to the world, that's kind of a broad term for not creation as God has created it and called it good, but rather the world, which would be actually categorically opposed to creation. These are these yeah. distinctions that Paul makes all the time. There's creation, then there's the world. Or the way the wor- that creation gets bent by our will. Yes, to, exactly. To, Much yeah. better way to say it. Yeah. So the world then is not creation as such, 
but it's everything about us that strives to drag us away from God. The pride and power of this world are such temptations. A brother of ours, capital B brother, a brother of ours was presented with this temptation when he was taken by Satan to a high mountain and shown all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory and all their power. That's such a, actually, I'd, I've read this sermon about a dozen times and I never actually caught that little nuance right there. With the capital that, B? No, that Satan shows Jesus the world, not creation, the mm. world. That Satan is in charge of the world. He's the prince of this world, but he's not the king of creation. Yeah. Well, and it's his means of, of, of temptation, right? Is is through right. power and fame through and wealth. Through the world, and, not through... Yeah. This, but this is a very important nuanced distinction. Jesus is the king over all creation. Mm-hmm. Satan is the prince of this world, not the prince of creation. He doesn't rule the earth in the sense of God gives him creation in, in lieu of hell being emptied. Oh, I see. Yeah. But rather the world in the sense of everything that drags us away from God. Yeah. So he is not the prince over creation. He's not the prince of trees, stars, birds, and fingernails. He's the prince of everything that drags us away from God. Like Babylon. Like Babylon, exactly. And that's a very, I Egypt, think that's a very or, important yeah. distinction, though. Yeah. Because we often give Satan creation. We're like, he's in charge of creation, and he mm. uses the world to attack us. Well, mm. by world, do you mean creation, or by world, do you mean the stuff that drags, yeah. like you pointed out, that drags us away from God? Well, and the things, the stuff, I mean, creation itself um, is good, right? Yes. But it can be used um, for evil, yeah, you might 100%. say, right? I mean, we, we, dis- <laughs> we distort it, right? So money, right. for example. Yeah. Right. It, exactly. it's, it's morally neutral. Right. It's right. just it's just rep it's a currency that represents some value. Right. right. It's a sign of something else. Yeah. And so but, it, it has a value attached to it and it can be used um, you know, to to buy right. a meal for yourself, right. for your family, or for someone in need, or it can right. be used um for other purpose. Right. But it cannot be used to light a fire. Really? It's against the law to burn currency. Oh, I didn't know that. I just, I, I only do, I only know because I mentioned it to my wife this morning. I was watching an interview and the person said when he was 18, he burned a dollar bill just to do it. And the, the interviewer said, oh, no, you, what you mean is you, you metaphorically, you burned it. You didn't actually burn it because that would be against the law and you go to jail. And that was the point is we can be put in jail for burning a piece of paper That's because enough. the paper in and of itself is inherently worthless. And it's all covered with occultic signs and symbols, by the way, in case you didn't know that. And yet, you can go to jail for burning currency. Hmm. That makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, but there unless, it is. There's the world. <laughs> yes, unless it is a god, lowercase g. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so, exactly to the point. So, most potent, let's see. So, take, he was taken by Satan to a high mountain, shown all the kingdoms of the world, all their glory, all their power. Most potent among the temptations of the world is the love of money. Ding, ding, ding. Mm-hmm. Money can be an instrument of blessing, but to many it signifies pride and power. Again, go to a voters meeting. I think I must have read this sermon before. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. I'm getting a little ahead of him. All right. It becomes a God in which they put their trust, and in this acquisition, people think their lives complete. When others judge the success of their lives by the amount of money they have, or they suppose they will be happy and solve all their problems if they would win the pools. Mm. Of those who fall to this temptation... Of the world and set their hearts on money, the scripture says, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. First Timothy six, nine through ten. And by money we're not just mean currency, right? I mean we no. we mean the acquisition acquisition of stuff. Yeah. 
yeah. or, or paper that that is attached to the value of stuff. Right. And we see this quite often when you ask someone their value, they they give you a monetary value. Yeah. I'm worth six figures. Yeah. Yeah. What are you worth to me? And then they'll start, again, like you said, naming off money in an abstract sense, whether it be paper money or just goods and services. Mm -hmm. Like, what is your value to me? Well, it's not that I love you. (laughs) It's rather, look at everything I do for you to buy your love, Mm -hmm. to procure your love. Money can't buy love, though. Hmm. can buy happiness. (laughs) I bought it. I bought happiness with money quite quite a few times. (laughs) <laughs> let's most not lie time. to ourselves most of the time. let's that not lie really, to ourselves that was a really nice dinner last night yeah exactly and it made you happy didn't it so it let's did. not say money doesn't buy happiness it mm-hmm. does it just can't buy you salvation <laughs> but this is the key point then is that we were talking in another um another venue that maybe it'd be better to have the voters meeting before the divine service rather than afterwards yeah because of the way people behave when it comes to matters of money and numbers mm-hmm. in church so it's like, why don't we just have a voters meeting, confess our sins, and then let go the, to the divine service. Let the voters meeting be um, be the law preaching to reveal the sin. There we go. Right, right to reveal exactly. the, right. the uh, idolatry. And that way, yeah, you just walk right into divine service and confess your sin, and it's fresh in your mind. Because you've made a, a god of mammon. Yeah. Well, people don't like politics. Um, and but for some <laughs> yeah. reason, they seem to think that they're it's morally neutral. Like, right. like we don't commit sin, when, and like, oh, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm morally sorry. neutral, morally neutral, because yes. because we can be morally neutral as creatures, That's right. That's absolutely. Right. Yeah, <laughs> tried that. So I'm going to skip down a paragraph just to wrap up this with mm-hmm. uh, one of the things because Nagel continues in the in the second paragraph on page 180. From the flesh come so many temptations to selfishness, which is the denial of love which is the denial of Christ. We talked about this in the last episode, and we've been talking about it in this one. It's not about obedience, it's about love. And so in our selfishness, which comes through the flesh, through these temptations, we deny love and then we deny Christ. Each temptation from the devil, the world, and our flesh is intended for our harm. Each would put us wrong with God. Each would have us say something untrue to God and treat him as a different sort of God than he is. Mm. Skipping to page 181 then, temptation this third paragraph, temptation teaches us the frailty of our own wisdom and strength. The resources of our strength are not in ourselves, but in our faithful God and his word. Let me repeat that. (laughs) The resources of our strength are not in ourselves, but in our faithful God and in his word. He is our strength in our song, right? Exactly. And he is our salvation. Thus, our capital B brother overcame temptation with the mighty weapon of God's word. Three times Satan was overthrown with the victorious, it is written. The same weapon is placed into our hands. We must know it and use it. Opposite this deceitfulness, we have the faithfulness of God. The guarantee of his word is his character, which you brought up in reference to the mind of God. God's word is his character. If you want to know what's on God's mind, go to his word. We know his character because he has shown us most clearly in Christ. Yeah. This is a a catechism question that I often have asked. Uh, Ask someone, you know, how how do you know that God loves you? Yeah. Right, and and you could say, well, he says so. All right, mm-hmm. that's true, um, but but love is known not only in word but in deed, right? Yeah. And so how do you know that God has loved you? Well, He made me, but He made everybody, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Was that in love? Sure, it was. But is that is that the height of His love, uh, or you know the the full more fullest expression? Ultimately, right. trying to get to the point where you say He died for me, you know, to forgive me, to to save me, right? right? I thought that's proof that he loves me or he right. or he wouldn't have he wouldn't have done such a thing. But that's the point is that we fall back into the word, mm-hmm. not into our own 
wisdom or signs or strength or anything that is of us. Well, if you really loved me, I would be wealthy right, exactly. or I wouldn't be tempted anymore. Right. Yeah. How can you say God is love when this has happened? Or how mm. can you say God loves me when this happened to me? Yeah. Yeah. And, and here's the Christ clincher then. We are baptized. There we are pledged to God. And God was pledged to us. He can't break his word and desert us. In baptism, the old man was put down, that there is never again in him such strength as can of itself overthrow the new man. Last Sunday, we had our Holy Communion. And there, Christ came to dwell in us. And with Christ came the strength of the Holy Spirit. With such strength, which is the strength of God, we cannot be overthrown. God is true, and no temptation can harm us if we be but true to God. And see, here's a thing. And he nailed it right there. Why have Holy Communion every Sunday? Why have it every Holy Day? Why have it every opportunity? Because Christ dwells in us, and with Christ comes the strength of the Holy Spirit to resist the temptations. Yep. Therefore, the it's like watering a plant. If you water a plant once a month and it shrivels and dies, why are you surprised? You yep. didn't water it enough. If you only take communion every so often and you're overcome by temptation, don't ask, why are you allowing this to happen, God? Ask, why have you cut Christ off of your life? Yeah. In such a way that you are not constantly being returned to the place of your strength, which is Christ and the Holy Spirit, which has gotten through baptism, Lord's Supper, through the it's gospel. It's just like the last, I think it's the last question from the Christian questions and their answers, right? To touch yeah. yourself, to see if you're flesh and blood, and yes. then believe what God's word says about it, right? right. Yeah, if and you're then, not moved to come regularly to the table. Right, but that you're going to be tempted by, by, by the world and the devil. I mean, he has all three... You know, that sinful flesh, world and devil, um, right there. And that's the reason, that should be the thing that compels you to receive the Lord's body and blood. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. This is the key point, then. It's not special. Well, you know what is special? The fact that you don't have to try and resist temptation and the devil on your own. Yeah. And so, yeah, page 181, one, two, three, fourth paragraph. Check that out if you're if you're struggling in your own congregation about the question of weekly communion and, yeah. and this whole argument about whether it's special or not. Take and, this question up at Bible study or from the pulpit or in conversation. The reason that we we as Lutherans want communion as often as possible, if nothing else, is other than being strengthened in faith and increased in love for one another, mm-hmm. is that Christ comes to dwell in us, and with Christ comes the strength of the Holy Spirit. Which is what strengthens us to not give in to temptation. Yeah, not to be overthrown. That's right. Exactly. And so if we are but true to God, then no temptation can harm us. And true in to God in this sense is in relation to the sacraments, in relation to the gifts. Yeah. We are baptized. We are Exactly. We are your child. And so when the devil tempts you, say, I am baptized into Christ, or sing the hymn, mm, God's own child. Even better. You know, if the devil says, Well, baptism do- isn't that important, remind him that baptism now saves you. Mm-hmm. If he says that you are faithless and without love, remind him that the body and blood of Jesus now are in you, and that with them come strengthening of faith and the increase of love, that the Holy Spirit is at work in you because you are a baptized child of God. Again, throw Jesus in the face of the devil and remind him you're God's devil, not my devil. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the problem is, is then when when we we try to take ownership or or agency and we cast Jesus um, out. right? Right. Again, it's the hold my beer moment. Right. It's like, Which the devil's is a, here, hold my beer. I mean, it's kind of an apathetic casting out. It's not exactly like pushing him out the door. It's just kind of say, oh, just stand in the corner, right? Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Watch this. <laughs> this could be real impressive. Right. Um, I've, been, I've been studying. I've been working out. I feel good. I feel good today. I, I think, think I can do we, this. I think we can do it. I think we can do it finally. Yeah, yeah. but no, I'm sorry. Satan's a, Satan's a coral belt, and uh, you'll never beat him. <laughs> hmm. And uh, luckily, Jesus sets the rules of the game. 
It, it seems Nagel actually uh, is probably in the situation, Dr. Nagel is, where uh, this parish is not having the sacrament every Sunday, which would have been very common. Yeah, yeah. Uh, middle part Especially of the, the 20th centuries. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but he's, he's compelling, um, yeah. just probably nudging every week, you know, in mm-hmm. a, every sermon. Um, here's why the sacrament is celebrated by us. Right. You know, this is Again, why the divine, the divine sheepdog doesn't clamp down his jaws on our hindquarters. He nips <laughs> at our heels. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, again, I have an Australian shepherd, so I see how a shepherd works. A shepherd dog works. They nip. They yeah. don't ever bite. They nip. That's why their muzzle is kind of elongated. Huh. It's not meant to like chomp like my English Mastiff, who has a face like a cinder block. Yeah, it's not like, hurt in harm. Her it's, face it's, is designed to just rip pieces of your body away from the rest of your body, whereas the, the shepherd is just nipping at you all the time. Right. And that's what the Word of God does, is it nips at you. And it's like, no, go this way, go this or way. Or rod and staff, if you prefer. Or rod and staff, long gospel, if you so prefer. Mm-hmm. It's all in Psalm 23. Um... But otherwise, I got nothing else. You got anything else? No, it's good. All right. Well, good we hope stuff. that this this brief three-part series during summer conferences yeah, pleases and delights you. Dr. Nagel is always, for us, a pleasing delight. Come back uh, next week for a brand new episode. And I hope we pass the audition. See you. You summoned me, Dr. Frankenstein? Indeed I did, Igor. I wanted to tell you that I'm retiring from the business of monster creation to do something that requires even more genius. What's that, Doctor? Coffee roasting, Igor. There are so many wonderfully complex variables to busy my intellect with. Try the end product, Igor. It's brilliant and delicious. Not bad, Doctor. But have you considered just ordering your coffee pre-roasted? Preposterous, Igor. No one else has the scientific attention to detail that this enterprise requires. What about coffee by Gillespie? Coffee by Gillespie? Christopher Gillespie is a master at selecting high-quality specialty coffee beans that are as sustainable as they are tasty. And to roast them to their finest, he uses traditional techniques combined with the latest technology. Something a scientist like you should appreciate, Doctor. Indeed, indeed. But the coffee, Igor, is it any good? Everything about coffee by Gillespie is done with taste in mind. Gillespie even ships your coffee directly to your address, so it doesn't lose its delectable flavor sitting on the store shelf. You've convinced me, Igor. Coffee by Gillespie clearly has me beat for coffee know-how. Where may I get some? Just go online to gillespie.coffee and order any time. Let it be done, Igor. But opt for the decaf. Frankie can be a handful when he's had too much caffeine. (laughs) Coffee by Gillespie. It's brilliant and delicious.